On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to the November 2019 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the co-editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for what will be an absolutely terrific conversation on intensivist burnout. Today, we're fortunate to have uh, Dr. Craig Lilly and Dr. Curtis Sessler as our guests. And before we get started, I'll let them each introduce themselves. Uh, Craig, if you could go first, please. I'm Craig Lilly. I'm at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester, and I've had a long-standing interest in excellent critical care and supporting our uh, critical care workforce. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Craig. And uh, uh, Curtis, if you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, you bet. Uh, pleasure to be here, Kurt Sessler. Um, I'm the Oren Murin Professor of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Dr. Murin was one of my mentors and proud to have, a, have my uh, title attached to, to him. Um, I'm Associate Chair for Faculty Development and involved in some of the critical care operations. And I've been involved in the practice of critical care for more than 30 years and, and really find that our, our focus on burnout and wellness is important. Um, it's something that has uh, emerged and, and seeing Dr. Lilly's work uh, uh, is, is going to help inform our future in that area. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have two uh, great experts in this field. Today we'll be discussing uh, Dr. Lilly's article in CHEST entitled Battling Intensivist Burnout, a Role for Workload, for workload Management. Before we get started on the article, um, I'm going to actually turn to Kurt, who's going to uh, tell our audience what intensivist burnout is and how big a problem it is in the community. Kurt? Thanks. Uh, well, it certainly is an important problem. If you look at uh, many of the epidemiologic studies, um, as many as 50% of individuals have complaints that are attached to burnout, uh, some of the characteristics. And those characteristics are, are emotional exhaustion, um, really part of the puzzle with overall exhaustion, but I think emotional exhaustion is really the key feature here. Um, in contrast to stress where you're hyper-engaged, there's uh, cynicism and withdrawal potentially as a second criteria. And then thirdly, a uh, sense of reduced effectiveness. Um, and this tends to occur in a setting of unremitting stress, uh, as well as an imbalance between the expectations for the work to be done and the actual ability to perform the work. So it certainly uh, is a common problem for uh, physicians and other providers uh, uniformly, but uh, at the top of the heap, unfortunately, are the intensivists. And why would you say that the intensivists are primarily um, the, the major uh, people get affected by intensivist burnout? Well, if you look at the large studies of physicians involved, first of all, it's a lot of front uh, frontline providers, so internal medicine uh, folks, as well as uh, neurologists, uh, uh, other individuals, family practice. Uh, so it is... Uh, kind of uh, towards patients, uh, uh, individuals who are involved uh, with a lot of patient care, direct patient care. Um, if you add on top of that, uh, the long hours and the uh, odd hours that intensivists work, um, it really creates uh, that ad additional burden. So the, the hours are long, uh, but also we tend to work a lot of weekends and and nights, uh, and those are times that many other individuals are recovering, and so from their busy work week. Uh, so those things, I think, are um, key 
Um, a third one is is um, that this tends to be fast-paced uh, and uh, critical decision making uh, that and and team-based, and so there is potential for conflict within that paradigm, and that is uh, showing up in a number of different studies as to be a key predictor for development of burnout. Gotcha. And before we get started on um, uh, Craig's study, maybe you could tell us some of the complications of uh, intensivist burnout, uh, because that, I think, gets to why it's so important that it gets addressed. Well, there are multiple problems related to, to burnout, both from the individual perspective, for, so the, the individual who's impacted by developing burnout, but also uh, very broadly. Um, so if you think about it, and this can be useful um, to articulate to leadership within your health system, is that from a business standpoint, burnout is bad. Um, so uh, burnout begets uh, turnover, and turnover is expensive. Uh, the other, perhaps even more compelling uh, uh, area of importance is that uh, a burnout individual is more likely to commit a major medical error uh, and to have more problems with their quality of work as it directly relates to patient care. So these are important factors that can be articulated uh, to leadership to, to say, let's take this seriously. What's most important for the individual who's impacted is that it, it can uh, impact your, uh, your satisfaction uh, with work. It can result in somatic uh, uh, problems. Um, and this has been well-defined, uh, particularly for ICU nurses. So our colleagues in the ICU setting, uh, some of the best work has been done really looking at the, the somatic complaints that may be associated with, uh, with burnout. One of the big ones, I think, is sleep. Um, certainly, uh, again, this is uh, one of those vicious cycles where more burnout, more sleep difficulty, and that begets, again, uh, more difficulty in recovering from the burnout. So it is uh, certainly potentially multifaceted for the uh, individual as well as for the system. And lastly, uh, I'd be remiss to not mention uh, something that's hard to talk about, and that is physician suicide. Um, and so clearly the rate of suicide for physicians is considerably higher than for other uh, lines of work. Um, and uh, it's important that, uh, that we pay close attention to that and, and obviously uh, uh, reduce that, uh, that burden. Thank you very much, Kurt. Well, with that in mind, and now that our Chess community knows uh, what features of burnout to recognize and how big a problem is, I'll turn it over to Craig, who will tell us about uh, the study that he performed and uh, the rationale for performing it. Craig? Well, we really started out by being so impressed and inspired by the 2016 um, consensus statement that Kurt and uh, Ruth Kleinpel, Dr. Gozo-Moss, and Good um, put forward that helped us to really define the syndrome as an imbalance between external demands and adaptive capacity and the incredible wealth of adaptive um, countermeasures that have been uh, adopted and are, are being um, more widely available to the critical care community. We thought that was just incredible. But we were also concerned that in addition to resilience measures, that maybe it's time to take a look at what the external demands are, because one can make progress either by um, working on adaptive capacity uh, along the lines that uh, Kurt and his colleagues had suggested, or on uh, work uh, on actual um, 
workload in terms of the external demands. So one of the things that got us really interested in this was that uh, because we are awake at night and in our telemedicine enterprise, and because I uh, still work there and really enjoy doing that, I realized that many of my colleagues weren't opening their first progress note, their first progress note of the day after attending at the bedside until after 11 o'clock at night. And so in one particular uh, circumstance, I knew that the person that wrote that note, she lived over an hour away. So she had to leave her house the next morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to be down uh, to do her job at 7 o'clock. And it became, I became increasingly concerned that um, people were doing documentation tasks way outside of reasonable work hours and so late at night that it might be affect their ability to be awake and alert and comfortable and fully rested for their next day, day's work. We've known for a long time uh, that the number of consecutive days that our intensivists could work uh, were lower. Uh, we, at one point, were doing 30-day rotations, and that was thought to be entirely undoable, and we had switched to uh, 14-day uh, rotations two weeks. And recently, many of our faculty members feel like they can't be on call on the two weekend days that would separate the two um, five-day weekend blocks, and that they really felt like they needed um, you know, restraints on the number of consecutive days they might be able to work. And that was another clue that there might be excessive workload or excessive emotional exhaustion. The other thing that we knew about was that a large number of the physician's assistants and nurse practitioners that join our workforce um, doing um, really a, a major share of the nighttime coverage for our university hospital hospital services, that they were often leaving the workforce at the time that they would have their second or third child. They really felt like that there was an imbalance between the amount of work they could do and the um, uh, work demand. So those are all clues that got us really thinking a little bit more carefully about this. And then uh, we were reading the Medscape surveys of burnout. So what are the rates? And, and as Kurt pointed out, not every time, but most of the time that these periodic surveys come out, intent critical care physicians are at the top of the hop. And we'd seen the most recent one um, at the time we were writing this article, and we were, again, as critical care uh, physicians, at the highest risk of bur burnout of all the other medical specialties. We really like the Medscape approach because the sampling technique leads to a pretty constant um, um, sampling of the populations. It's the same general uh, method that makes sort of reliable measurements. And so even though the accuracy of an individual measurement might not be so good, but it really uh, lended itself to comparisons over time. So one of the things that we had noticed was that specialties with more documentation seem to have higher rates of burnout and smaller increments in the rate of burnout at the time that medical records were being um, upgraded in the United States. And then uh, pay, and specialties that had really low um, documentation burn, burnout before the implementation of a medical record seemed to have greater increases. So we um, measured the documentation requirements in pages and plotted that against the uh, that 
increase in documentation required at the implement time of implementation of a medical record by specialty with the same patient and the same physician, just how long their note was before and after the transition of the medical record by specialty and discovered that there was really a, a robust curvilinear relationship between the increment in uh, documentation required and the uh, increment in stress out and in, in burnout that was measured by the Medscape instrument. And so we were astounded that we were able to account for as much as two-thirds of the variance uh, in burnout uh, by the amount of documentation that was required. So that led really to two major hypotheses to explain that. And we did some qualitative research to try to determine which of the two alternatives we should really focus on. One incredibly important possibility was that the stress um, and the burnout relates to incorporating information into the medical record using pull forward and other electronic uh, devices that uh, potentially uh, introduces errors into the accuracy of the record, and that uh, for some members of our workforce, ruminating about that can lead to substantial psychological uh, distress. And so that is an area that we uh, decided not to pursue directly, but one that we think is really important uh, a target for future research. We also heard uh, from our qualitative research that there just seemed to be too many things they needed to do. So we t decided to really focus in on, well, how much time is required? So we did a task frequency and a time-to-task completion study. These are relatively easy to do. It turned out that our rough estimates of a task fre frequency based on unit volume, but pretty accurate unit volume estimates, uh, correlated very nicely with our actual enumeration of how many tasks were required. And then we were able to measure a large number of different members of our workforce and how long it took them to do the task. And so if you take the number of tasks and you take the time, you can figure out how much time it takes you uh, to do your documentation required tasks, and you can compare that to the amount of time that you're scheduled to be at work. So we could do a little bit of a ratio that way. So that led to really two possibilities. It might have turned out uh, that our individual intensivists were really inefficient at doing their work and that we really needed to work with individuals to develop better work habits and best better work skills, but it didn't turn out that way. It turned out that less than 20 one in 20 of our workforce was an inefficient worker. And we realized that many people that didn't have the efficiency skills had already self-selected themselves out of pursuing critical care. In fact, what we found was that there just seemed to not be quite enough minutes in the day to do all the required tasks. So when we took the time that it was required to do all of the tasks and we divided it by the available time, we realized that 86% of the available minutes were committed to electronic health record required tasks. And so we then compared that to some industrial standards because these are quite well established. And the one that we um, chose was overall equipment uh, efficiency. And this is an industrial standard that's used by large manufacturing companies like Toyota that measure how efficiently their machines can assemble um, products using 100% non-defective non and 100% available parts. 
And a, a OEE of 40% is terrible, 60% is pretty good, and 85% is world-class. So we realized that on our current EHR environment, we're requiring our um, critical care providers to operate more efficiently than the machines that Toyota has bought to assemble uh, Toyota vehicles. So this really let us know that there's, a, there's an imbalance and that we need to come up with ways to uh, be able to do those tasks in a way that is um, less efficient. And we also need to be careful because we need to do it in a way that doesn't lead to more psychological, psychological rumination when, when, uh, when documentation is done that the physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants don't feel uh, good about. So the main finding was of our study was that um, workload can be excessive, and it's important uh, to identify that and to come up with countermeasures that are an amazing complement to the resilience-based measures that uh, Ruth Kleinpel and Kurt Sessler and Dr. Moss and Dr. Good had uh, come and Dr. Gozel had come up with before. Well, thank you for a really excellent overview of your study, Craig. Kurt, I'm going to turn to you. Um, Electric, uh, electronic health records were sold to administrators and physicians as a time-saving product that would improve uh, efficiency and productivity, but Craig's findings seem to suggest that there were unintended consequences. Uh, maybe you could explain uh, your interpretation of Craig's study and uh, any limitations that you identified. Sure. Um, so, first of all, hats off to Craig and his team. Um, I think they really moved the ball forward in a fashion that shows actual data that supports what we've all known, <laughs> and that is that uh, the amount of time devoted to EMR is considerable. Um, what I found interesting about their uh, task-based study was that it, it coincided very very uh, similarly with a time motion study done uh, with hospitalists. And the hospitalists, basically the same thing. I think theirs was 88% of their time was devoted to uh, the various factors that Craig talked about. So very similar to the 86% that they observed. Um, and what was also telling in both studies is that the amount of time documenting was double that of the actual face-to-face -face contact time. Uh, and, and so clearly there is just a, a wonderful marker there of the, of the situation that we found ourselves in. Uh, I think we all have uh, and still look for the promise of what, what you can do with the, all that data that's in an EMR uh, and with decision support uh, uh, methodology, I, you know, it, it clearly has a great deal of promise. Uh, that some of which is being realized in terms of uh, identifying the patient at high risk, uh, whether it's early warning scores or if it's other uh, uh, factors related to deterioration in organ function and therefore impact on medication dosing, things of that nature. Uh, those are, I think, the real promise. And then the historical reference so you can look back and see what, what has been done. But the burden is uh, is significant, and, and that's the... Uh, uh, the entry uh, process, which seems to be uh, quite inefficient. Um, you know, I don't know how many uh, ICUs have scribes. Certainly one of our other uh, group of colleagues who has a high rate of burnout, uh, the emergency medicine uh, uh, physicians uh, and, and uh, providers uh, have embraced uh, the use of uh, scribes, as have uh, uh, outpatient uh, practitioner. So, is that a is that a potential uh, partial solution? The 
the real solution is uh, streamlining uh, the data that we must enter. Uh, but uh, there may be other uh, things that we should consider as well. So, Craig, um, you've identified this big problem. How would you address it? I mean, it sounds like uh, we're expecting our doctors to become more efficient and productive than machines. Uh, how would you solve this problem or, uh, or offer the p potential solutions to this problem that's been identified? I think that being uh, in the critical care environment actually helps a little bit. I mean, both Kurt and I real have realized forever that we don't give all the care to the patients. Actually, we have nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, physical therapists that help us. And when we uh, go to make changes in our ICU, we don't generally do so in a um, hierarchical, um, this is what we're going to do, I'm the captain of the ship kind of a way. We uh, collaborate. We talk to each other. We um, work together collaboratively. And so when we look back on the, e the way that EHRs were brought in, there were um, really important government subsidies that the institutions wanted to capture. And largely, uh, for many places, what came out of the box is what you got. And there wasn't a lot of additional resources to optimize, to, to to cut and to, uh, to, to tailor the electronic record to the actual workflows. And for many of us, the electronic record we bought wasn't really designed for critical care. It was designed for kind of post-operative care and other kinds of uh, inpatient activities that are non-critical care based. So I really think that it's time to work with our IS department and to try to match up our workflows a little bit better uh, with um, how the electronic health records actually work. And there's a lot of efficiencies we could go over. I won't uh, go in that direction. But what I will say is that I think what really matters is the collaborative approach. And the reason that this study, I think, is helpful is that if we didn't have it, the likely outcome is we would have said, oh, it's those darn inefficient doctors. They don't know how to use the EHR. They should talk to their son or daughter who's electronically savvy, and they should learn how from them. And if I just give them a little extra training, they'll be really efficient, where that's not for 90% or more of our people, that is not the issue. The issue is that there's just too many things to do and it takes too long. So the fundamental processes need to change. And a partnership around fundamental processes and electronic processes and scribes is an important uh, way to go about uh, making yourself more efficient. That's an important discussion to have with what will work here, what will work in my local shop. Everybody shops a little different. You can make these measurements of uh, workforce efficiency by just, um, you know, with a stopwatch and watching your own wor workforce. And it really informs you whether worker efficiency or the fundamental workflows for care are where you should be working on. A lot of places have um, getting rid of the stupid stuff kind of uh, programs where the IS folks sit down with clinicians and they try to identify things that are just really inefficient and need to be changed. And those, that collaborative approach, IS professionals, nurses, physicians, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, all trying to work together to make the work environment more efficient and all equally sharing uh, the benefits of that and particularly the fact that we can spend more time with our patients, which is really what clinicians love to do. For me, those are the solutions and where I think we need to go.
So I actually want to dig a little bit deeper on that, Craig. So you mentioned the importance of speaking to the IT department. So let's say I'm a junior faculty member and I've been tasked with improving um, uh, or decreasing burnout. What would I say or speak to or collaborate with the IT department to, do, uh, to address specifically? Uh, in your experience, what two or three pointers would you speak to them about in, in terms to improve productivity and decrease burnout? Yes, I'll give you three. Um, you asked for two or three, so I'll give you three three points. The first point is that the impetus for change needs to come from the hospital leadership. I think if you're a junior faculty member and you're going to walk into your CIO's office and say, we don't like the way the EHR is, you need to change it, that is not, in my view, is not the way forward. Senior management needs to say that, look, our workforce efficiency really matters to us. We want to serve our patients better and we need to do better and we are going to put the team together to do this. So the first thing is there needs to be a charge to the committee from from the, the hospital the leaders and the leaders that have financial responsibility as well, because it needs to be done in a fiscally um, prudent way. The second point is that uh, you need to have a series of meetings. So if you're a junior faculty member, you're not going to solve this by just sitting down with your IS the CIO of your hospital saying, do this or do that, that's never going to cut it. You need to make sure that you're engaged, not necessarily with the CIO, but the people that can really change the system, that know what can and can't be done technically. So you need technical team members. And you as the junior faculty member, you have to have good ideas. So that's my second point. You need to meet regularly. My IS team for our electronic um, EIC enterprise, uh, we meet every week. And I thought I would never be doing that. I've been doing that since 2006. And those meetings are productive, and we develop relationships, and we can move forward the same way we do in, in our clinical, clinical quality care and our intensive care units. And the third and the last point is that you need to be interprofessional. You need to get everybody at the table because it's really easy for it to be easier for the attending doctor, but harder for the resident, harder for the respiratory therapist, or uh, workflows that don't make sense from a nursing point of view. So you have to have everybody at the table and um, with a common uh, objective uh, from the senior leadership and really to work together to identify the stupid stuff and get rid of it because in almost every electronic environment from a critical care point of view, there is a lot of stupid stuff. Great. I think those are really great insights. Kurt, uh, would you like to comment on that? And maybe you could share with us some of the stupid stuff that we have uh, that's uh, impacting our flow. <laughs> uh, Craig hit the nail on the head. That is, uh, he, he has exactly the, the right look at this, and has, it sounds like he's done some fantastic work uh, locally. If you look at uh, surveys, one of the big uh, negatives uh, is loss of control that physicians cite as a, uh, as a key factor for dissatisfaction and even for burnout. So part of what Craig is defining there is an approach to regain some of the control. Uh, another uh, key factor that is cited is, is that administrators don't listen to the clinicians. And in some cases, the uh, values uh, for the administrators and clinicians may be different. So uh, in some cases, I think there's background work that needs to be done in terms of uh, uh, understanding at the leadership level what is actually happening on the front lines uh, by clinicians. And, and Craig uh, outlines that beautifully. Um, We've done some interesting work here with uh, uh, more broadly in the Department of Medicine, something that we call Please Fix This, which is uh, kind of like 
Craig's Eliminate the Stupid Stuff. Um, and it's an opportunity using uh, a red cap mechanism for anybody to kind of say, hey, here's a problem that I've observed. And here's a solution. So there are three requirements to this. You have to identify the problem, but you also have to propose a solution. So it's not just a, a complaint session. Uh, and then thirdly, as a balancing uh, measure, you have to say something good. <laughs> so you have to say, uh, you know, talk about something that is working well, so uh, a positive. But the, we've had uh, probably 40 of these that have been submitted. And in some cases, what we do then is funnel these up by uh, official Letterhead uh, 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 letters to key administrative leaders in those areas and follow up with them. Uh, and in some cases, it gives voice uh, to uh, clinicians who may have great ideas, and the administrators just haven't really thought of them. Um, so I think those are uh, important things for us to make progress uh, on, uh, exactly as Craig outlined. I'll add one other thing that I think makes critical care even more challenging, and that is the surge. Um, so um, our workflow, as opposed to, uh, say, outpatient uh, medicine, uh, has tremendous ups and downs. And so the workload that's being uh, thrust upon us in the middle of the night or uh, other times may have inadequate resources. The resources were fine until the surge happened, uh, but the resources don't tend to be as flexible, certainly, uh, to meet that surge in, uh, in workload. So that's a, that's a real challenge, I think, for us to, to work through and, and uh, develop and articulate solutions uh, to leadership uh, to, to mitigate some of that. So, Craig, how would you address that surge? Because that's definitely going to be a problem in the winter months and then when we as intensivists see a lot more uh, increased number of patients and uh, severity of illness. How would you address uh, this big surge in patient load? Well, I really believe that we have a sort of fixed staffing ratios, both for the nurses and physicians and variable workload. So uh, staffing solutions that are more flexible with regard to um, uh, to providing more workforce members, more critical care access when we need it is important. And I must say, as a critical care community, we haven't been very good at doing that. So I do think the way forward, uh, particularly because it requires both doctors, nurses, sometimes pharmacists, I think it really this collaborative approach, and I really love the one that Kurt put forward. One thing I will add about Kurt's comment um, and the, the way in which they go about it is that we have really tried to move away from the Big Bang solution. We have this really smart person, a really smart group, and they know exactly what to do, and we're just going to do it everywhere tomorrow. When we do that, we end up with unexpected problems. So we've really adopted an approach wherever it's possible, and this is completely different than how we implemented our EHR, to we find one place where we think it's going to work really, really good, one smaller segment of whatever population we are, and we do a pilot. And we have uh, some objective metrics, and we see whether it works, and we learn from that. And that then, before we go and put it everywhere, we have a little bit better idea what we're dealing with. And I, I must say, I don't know how many of Kurt's 40 projects you know, went off perfectly well with the Big Bang, uh, but I must say that most of our projects get modified, and that what we would have thought was, you know, I'm the expert, and this is what I think. It's just like, it's very humbling. It doesn't quite work the way you think it's going to, uh, and knowing that and how to 
tailor those projects and how to have them evolve. So we've moved away essentially from revolution and towards this process, this inclusive process involves listening and negotiating and multiple specialists of an evolutionary process to deal with things. And I really feel like we need to evolve away from burnout, and I don't think there's going to be a revolutionary way to get rid of it. Got you. So I want to turn back to one of the, the points you brought up earlier about that we don't need to um, – that maybe our intensivists are actually doing the best that they can in terms of efficiency point of view. I want to turn it back to recruiting intensivists. When we're speaking to residents or potential fellows uh, to come into the critical care field, what kind of physician should we be looking for in order to deal with this problem of burnout and the problem of uh, ever-increasing workload from the EHR? Uh, Craig, I'll let you answer first, and then I'll turn to Kurt. Well, this is really Kurt's wheelhouse, so I'll be interested to see what he says. But I really think that it's no different than it was a while ago, that you have to be a caring person. You have to feel like you can make a difference, and you have to feel like when you're participating um, during the surge or uh, when there's an unstable patient or a really distraught family member, that, that the personal investment that you make uh, brings value uh, both to them and to you. So we're looking for people who enjoy, um, have personal satisfaction in the day-to-day giving of critical care. And when I look for faculty members, that's what I look for. Got you. Kurt? Oh, that's right on target, of course. Um, It really is team-based, so someone who works well on a team. Um, Again, some of the uh, data from surveys, uh, conflicts were the most clinically and statistically significant uh, predictors of burnout. And so uh, uh, working well on a team, I think, is critical. Obviously, there's a baseline skill set. Uh, and even though uh, we're focusing more on drivers, I think this also uh, lends itself to uh, thinking about the resiliency and, and the emotional intelligence of that individual who's working with you. So someone who's a perfectionist who is unwilling to delegate or ask for uh, help is at risk. And so you need to have that person who has has the self-confidence but is also uh, very uh, willing to say, I, I'm a little over my head, or at least I've got the numbers that are, uh, I've got too much to do at once. So I think uh, having someone who uh, uh, fits into that uh, category is really uh, important. Uh, an interesting study looking at emotional intelligence in surgical residents and burnout, and there was a very strong correlation. Those who had the most emotional intelligence had the lowest rate of burnout. So understanding themselves and who they're working with and being able to do that. So I, so I think these characteristics, uh, some are somewhat inherent, uh, but uh, they absolutely may be learned and uh, supported. So uh, incorporating that, I think, uh, into um, who's working well and helping those who are struggling a little bit uh, is important as well. That's very valuable information. Uh, Craig, maybe you could share some challenges you had in performing your study and any um, uh, future studies that you would have planned based on uh, your work uh, with this current publication. I think that it was um, it was a little tricky for us to come up with a way uh, to do the timing. Um, nobody, when they're working, like somebody looking over their shoulder with a stopwatch. It just, it just, you know, it just doesn't go that well. So we were uh, some creativity was required to prevent any sort of a, a substantial Hawthorne um, effect. 
Uh, and so that was one uh, one issue. Another issue was just um, getting cooperation with our IS colleagues to help us to accurately, you know, count up all of the encounters and things that needed to be done. And I think there was also some reluctance, um, even though we have a good relationship with them, for them to realize that perhaps this wonderful, incredible uh, HIM 7 compliant uh, installation of this EHR needs to be worked on. And so I think that was uh, just uh, getting the buy-in and the cooperation to really work on this because we, we need to uh, is, is one of the big challenges. In terms of future research, um, you know, this is a single study thing, a single center thing. And so, and every uh, situation is different. So I'd be most interested to see if other folks are also finding nationally that their workloads appear to be um, excessive based on their current EHRs. Thank you. And Kurt, you obviously had the, um, the fortune of uh, more than 20, 30 years experience in, in this field. But what future studies would you want to see published uh, on this topic? I think that's a great question and, and uh, one that uh, uh, really uh, works on an approach that Craig has described, uh, which is uh, the you know, PDSA type of cycle where you're making some changes. Um, and parenthetically, uh, the 40 different letters that we sent out, uh, they, re they were received with varying uh, levels of enthusiasm, <laughs> uh, so certainly not 40 big projects that are underway. Um, so I think that that is, you know, looking at it from a team-based standpoint, looking at it from a standpoint of efficiencies, uh, I think the surge capacity part is really important. Um, it is, uh, particularly in medical ICUs, perhaps, um, Middle of the night. Uh, this this is something that is reality that uh, that we need to be able to supply uh, sufficient uh, personnel resources to manage effectively. Um, you know, again, as Craig mentioned, I think I think making interventions, measuring the effects, making sure that uh, leadership recognizes this as one of the most important thing. So key performance indicator as to uh, uh, clinician, clinician wellness uh, and uh, satisfaction uh, and burnout, I think that's uh, an important starting place. Um, two other quick comments related uh, to that. One is I think we really need to pay attention to our women colleagues uh, in almost all of the different surveys related to uh, burnout uh, among uh, physicians and other clinicians, uh, it's a risk factor to be a woman. And uh, so we really need to focus uh, some effort there as well. And secondly, when we talk about uh, meaning in work, I think it's important to think about menial work, which we've been talking about, and eliminating menial work. But I think it's also important for us to pay attention to those uh, events that are devastating in the ICU, uh, whether it's violence in the workplace or if it's uh, uh, severe conflict or in some cases uh, unremitting moral distress for difficult cases, uh, we need to figure out better ways to, to manage and minimize the impact of, of those events as well. Thank you for highlighting those uh, really important um, future research projects. Um, we're going to start winding down this podcast, um, and I'm going to give Craig uh, the first word and then Kurt the last. Um, Craig, maybe you could just tell us uh, any points that we haven't covered in this uh, podcast that you would want your audience to know and any concluding remarks. Craig? 
I guess the one thing we haven't focused on is just how much variability there is. And so um, many years ago, we had a wonderful Speaker of the House from uh, the Boston area that used to say all politics is local. And I think that all burnout is local. And so it's really important to have a good bead on what the what the local factors are and what's really um, upsetting or what's um, disturbing your workforce. And so it, it, that's the the minor point. And the major point is one that Kurt has made in spades, and that is that burnout is more easily prevented than it is remediated. So it absolutely is important to do everything we can to prevent it from occurring. Thank you, Craig. And Kurt, I'll give you the last word. Well, this has been uh, really fun and and, uh, interesting. Um, I hope that this helps us make an impact uh, with our colleagues, because burnout is so prevalent. You think about it, uh, in some situations, 50% of uh, individuals working in an ICU complain of being burned out. So this is, we have a burning platform uh, to, to work from. Um, and, and it is a combination of uh, local efforts and efforts at the highest levels that I think are going to make a difference. Uh, I haven't really talked about um, CMS or some of the other mandates that, that are very difficult to to make an impact on, uh, so they're, they're, we can uh, advocate at various levels for this. But most importantly, in the ICU with our team and looking after each other and thinking about ways that we could make it more efficient and better for us and for our patients. Well, that's a really great way to end the podcast. I'd like to give a very big thank you to Drs. Lilly and Sessler for an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'd like to thank our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this was a Chest Podcast. Thank you.